the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today in the readings in the morning uh, that we read, in the readings of Monday, we read about how Christ, after he entered into Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and he expelled the money changers from the temple. And these money changers, what they were doing is they invented a new currency, which was the temple currency. And so whenever people would come and, and, and want to purchase an animal to sacrifice, they would have to purchase it with the temple currency. And they would have an exchange rate from the regular money to the temple money so they could buy these animals. It's kind of like when you go to uh, an arcade and they don't take regular money, they take tokens. And so they can charge you however much they want for the tokens, and you can't use the tokens anywhere else, so you have to use them there. So this was a way of kind of um, stealing from the people because they would charge whatever they wanted for the conversion of this money, and they would force people to buy this. So this is why the temple became a marketplace. It became a place where people would buy and sell because by necessity, people needed to come to the temple and purchase animals for sacrifice, and so they were able to be making money off of this. Instead of seeing this as being a spiritual activity where we want to make these animals available to the people for their sacrifice to God, instead they abused it and they made money from it. So we see Christ's reaction actually when he came to the temple. and We read about this in John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. This is certainly not an image that we usually associate with Christ when we think of Christ. This is not the image that people would have as a background for their phones. Usually it's the kind of the kind Christ holding a lamb in his arms and there we always remember that Christ is, is gentle and kind with us. But we don't see this side of him very much on earth. We don't see this side as much, except when dealing with the Pharisees. And in very few situations we see him become angry and we see what he's going to do to the people. So we ask ourselves, who is Christ? Is he only the gentle shepherd or is he also this one who brings out the whip and he begins to turn over the tables. I mean, you imagine the scene where someone is going through the temples and just turning over the tables. Imagine someone is coming to the church and is so upset, they're just taking all of the tables and just turning them over. It's a very violent scene, actually, when you, when you think about it. But it tells us something about God and his holiness and how he does not tolerate sin. Earlier in the day, also, when we read um, the homily, I think it was from Snake Shnuda, uh, the homily, he was speaking about how when people come to the church, they can't just be like any people. They can't just act like any, any person out in the world. There has to be a distinction between the way that we act and the way we speak here in the church versus out in the world. And so this necessitates that we as Christians who are bringing a message of goodness and love to people, but we are also the salt of the earth. We are here to purify. And in order for us to purify, sometimes we have to be like this. We have to be like this Christ with the whip. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to go actively and hitting people, right, with a whip or being violent physically in this way. But sometimes we have to stand up for what it is that we believe in a way that might cause offense to other people. And we sometimes as Christians, we shy away from this. We're, we're worried about doing this. We feel like, well, this is maybe not my place and I don't want to offend people and people don't like Christians anyway, so I don't want to add to that. Or we feel like this would be a judgment uh, on people. But actually, this is what God is calling us for. God is calling us not to judge the people in the sense that we are deciding who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. But certainly we can judge the actions of people because God has given us the commandments by which to judge. 
And this same standard actually we used to judge ourselves. We used to judge our own actions. When I prepare myself for confession, how is it that I know what to confess? I have to judge myself. I have to judge my actions based on the commandments of God. We also judge the actions of the world based on not my own opinion, but based on the judgments and the commandments of God. So God is actually commanding us to go. When he, when he says to the apostles, go and preach what, and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what does he mean? Does he mean only come and you know be kind and gentle to everyone? Or is there times where we have to be more firm and we have to stand for what we believe in the face of um, opposition? So I want to speak uh, a little bit today about dogma and acceptance. Okay, what is dogma? The definition of dogma is what? A belief or set of beliefs that is accepted by the members of a group. So when we speak about in the church, our church is full of dogmas. We have so many different dogmas, so many things that we believe. Okay, an example here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, but now actually, now that we say that we believe in the Bible and we believe in the words of, of God th that have come through the Bible, can we say, okay, well, what about this list? Now we have this big list of people that we believe are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So what happens when I meet these people? What happens when I meet adulterers or drunkards or sodomites, homosexuals, adulterers, fornicators, all these people? You know, we're, we're, we have, we're kind of at odds with this because we think to ourselves, well, I'm trying to go and, and spread the message of the gospel to people so they might be saved, so they could come to the church, so they could convert to Christianity and convert to Orthodoxy. So we want to be kind and we want to be gentle with them and we want to lead them gradually in. But at the same time, we're saying what? God is saying these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So what is the appropriate response? How is it that I show love to people as this? Well, how is it that Christ showed us love? Okay, this perfect love that God showed us is agape love. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this model of love that Christ offered to us was himself. It was a self-sacrificial love. He offered himself to us in love. But what is it that he did not do? He did not change his rules. You know, even when Christ was on the earth and he was associating himself with harlots and adulterers and thieves and all these people, he did not change his rules. He never told them, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, it's okay that you continue stealing and I'm going to accept you anyway. Or to the harlot, it's okay that you continue your life of like sexual promiscuity, but I'm going to forgive you anyway. That, that was never the situation with Christ. And near there was a situation here when we, when we see Christ with a whip. Christ here with a whip is resorting to this because these people have not listened. These people have not changed their ways. These people, these Pharisees, who have been told time and time again by Christ, what is it that they need to do, have refused him. So there was no other argument with them anymore. Okay, So we ask ourselves, how is it then that God sees sin? If you look in uh, Psalm 119, it says, I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. This is the same God who we just said what the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son. Okay, He says what? God is disgusted by the treacherous. God is disgusted by sin. So 
But then we read in John 13:35, by this all we will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So God is telling us to love one another, but at the same time he's saying that he's disgusted with sin. He overturns money uh, the tables of the money changers. He gives us a list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how do we understand all of this? So this the, the issue comes in what does the word love mean? Because our society has perverted the word and it no longer has any meaning as God has shown the meaning. Who can we say when we say the word love here in our society? Does, does it mean the kind of love that Christ showed where he completely sacrificed himself for another? In our society, love has been changed to mean I accept you as you are with all the things that are in you and, and, and I'm not going to rebuke you about anything. This is love according to the world standard. That I will not rebuke you. That whatever it is you do is good. I'm not going to tell you that it's wrong and I'm not going to try to stop you from doing it. I accept you exactly as you are with no intention of change whatsoever. Okay? But what is we as Christians, as Orthodox Christians, what it is that we have to ask when we ask do we love others? Okay? The ultimate love that we can offer to the world is demonstrated in the salvation of the world. How is it that we can bring the world to salvation? This is the greatest love. What good is it if I go and make people feel good about themselves? and make people feel good about their own lifestyles and whatever it is. And I make so many friends because I'm not offensive to anyone. But yet at the end, all these people are condemned because they do not live according to the word of God. And I myself actually will be condemned with them because I had the opportunity to tell them the truth and to show them the truth. But instead, I was too afraid to do so. And instead, I just kept my mouth shut. Instead, I pretended like everything around me was fine. And I didn't want to be that person who stands up for what I believe to cause a commotion or to cause an offense. And so this is the problem then. This is where our love and our dogma collide. How is it that I can be loving and at the same time I, I adhere to and live according to the beliefs of the church and the beliefs of the Bible? Well, it's because I have to understand what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? What are some of the questions that love asks? Love asks... What can I do or say to save this person? This is, the, this is the question that I ask myself. How should I treat this person to help them in their salvation? This is the way that we express love. So if I have a belief, a dogma, that I believe in is the truth, meaning our worldview as Christians, that there is a God and there is a heaven and there is a hell and there are certain requirements for salvation, then if I truly love others, then I will do whatever it is in my power to bring those people into salvation into the dogma that I have. So my purpose when I stand up for what I believe and perhaps sometimes cause offense to others, my purpose is not to offend. My, and if I can avoid offending others by any means, I should. But my purpose is actually to love. Because if this person continues to walk in whatever way that they are walking that is apart from God, then they will not be saved and I will be condemned with them. Because God will tell me, well, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you do something? I put you there so you could be an influence on them and you were not. It doesn't mean that our actions necessarily are going to cause a, a conversion in every person we see. But we might be just one small voice that adds to a sequence of other voices that eventually might lead that person to repentance. And we have no idea what it is or not. The point is, is that sometimes we cringe and we shy away from this. And even more than this, sometimes we are convinced actually that by doing so we are acting out of love. We, are, we, th we think that we're acting out of love because we don't want to offend. But this is completely contrary to the Christ that we see today in the readings. The Christ who overturned the tables. He is a Christ of love and also a Christ of overturning tables. A Christ that offended many. 
He was a Christ that offended many. How else would he be crucified? I mean, he was crucified because he offended so many people, right? So we have to always keep this balance uh, in our mind. We see a, an example of the love of Christ in the adulterous woman, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. When the people wanted to stone her, and he says, what, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This is the merciful God. This is the God who um, shows kindness, who maybe anyone in our modern society today, when he hears of this story, will think, yes, this is an example of love. Someone who is about to be attacked and judged, Christ protects them. Christ doesn't allow them to come to harm. We see this clearly as an example of mercy and love of God that even the secular world, even the non-Christian world, even the atheist world would be able to read this story and agree that this is a loving act. Okay, But what about a different act? What about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? In this verse, St. Paul is speaking about a person who had an ungodly relationship with his stepmother. Okay, And this is what he says. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. He's referring to this sinful man. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, anyone, again, in our society reading this verse would think, okay, this is not the picture of Christianity. This is not the picture of the love of Christ. What do you mean deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? What does that even mean? It means to, to be, essentially, to be kicked out of the church. But why? Is it just a vindictive act? Is it because we are judging this man? Is it because we're saying that we're better than this man? Actually, no. The purpose of it is what? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So our purpose and our goal is higher than what might, what might appear in the moment. His goal, St. Paul's goal of excommunicating this man, was not to demonstrate some kind of punishment on him, but, but it was for his ultimate salvation. It was so that ultimately he would be saved because he knew that if he were excommunicated from the church, then he might wake up to his sin and repent and then be able to be accepted again. And he was accepted again. So the way that we demonstrate our love to people is not always that flowery, kind, gentle love that we think, that we think about and that Christ himself did not always do this. So we have to be very careful in the way we approach these situations. How is it that I demonstrate love? I demonstrate love by doing what is necessary for the salvation of the person who is in front of me. And sometimes that actually might mean that I offend them. How can we be imbalanced in either of these ways? In some ways, I might be too imbalanced on the dogma side, meaning all I care about is what the rules are. And I completely disregard the feelings or the circumstances of the person that I'm speaking to. Or I can be imbalanced on the other side where I have what I call excessive acceptance, where I don't want to offend the person at all. And so I essentially say, whatever, anything goes. God is going to accept anything. Okay? What, are, what are some ways that I can be imbalanced in either way? So first we'll speak about how I'm imbalanced on the side of judgment, that I'm so critical and I'm so judging of everyone that I see because they are different than me or because they sin in a certain way. This is, this is, this is a lack of love. It is not the case that we, because we have dogma that we believe in, that we approach every situation in such a way as to offend, as such a way as to be critical, as such a way to, to, to push these people away. No, there's a time and a place for everything. What is the first way that we might be imbalanced? Salvation by legalism. Sometimes we believe in the church because we are orthodox and we are here, that we are saved because we're so good, and those people who are not good like us, those people are condemned 
and I don't even want to approach them, I don't even want to touch them, I don't even want to talk to them, I don't even want to look at them. Okay? This is a sense of judgment that I have. She, Christ did not do this. Christ went and he spoke and ate with these sinful people. Right? I can't say, well, because they don't practice what I do and because they have sinful lifestyles, then they're untouchable to me. I can't, I can't do that. This idea of salvation by legalism, meaning that I believe that I'm saved by my works because I'm such a good person. The Jews had this issue. They felt like because they were Jews, because they had the commandment and the law of Moses and they obeyed it, then this made them righteous and this made them the people of God. And the Gentiles were unclean because they did not follow this, this command. And they took this to an extreme. So, for instance, one of the laws of the Jews was that they could not travel a certain distance on the Sabbath day. They had to stay home and in the close vicinity to their home. So what would they do? They would find loopholes. They would find a way around it. They would take the door frame from their house and they would carry it with them wherever they went. So they never actually passed through the door frame and so they considered that they had never left home. Or they would put personal items of theirs in other places around so that whenever they would go to that place, they would consider again that they're still at home because it has their personal items. This is a legalism, right? This is a legalism. And in all of this, they felt righteous. In all of this, they felt like they were, do, they were obeying God and they were following the commands of God. So this is unreasonable and unrealistic. Again, we should not imagine ourselves to be righteous. We are not here because we are righteous. We are here because we are sinful. Another type of... Um, imbalance on the, size of on the side of judgment toward people is that we believe that we are saved by our knowledge. Actually, this is an even worse than legalism. This is even worse than legalism. At least with legalism, I have some kind of action. I'm doing actually something. Okay? Maybe I believe incorrectly that I'm being saved by this action, but at least I have works. I have something to show for. But salvation by knowledge is something else. Salvation by knowledge is I believe that I'm saved simply because I know about God. I know about him. Maybe I'm not doing anything. I just simply know stories about the Bible and things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Right? So sometimes, again, we might believe that there are people who are outside the church who are beyond salvation, that they can never come to know what it is that we know or come to accept what it is that we accept and that our knowledge is so great compared to theirs that, again, they are untouchable. There's no way for us to reach them. There's no way. So we're not going to even to try to teach. We're not even going to try to make an attempt, right? So this is the second way of imbalance on the side of judgment. What is the third? Salvation by social or ethnic clique. That the church becomes a kind of a club. The church is for the church people. The church is for the people that I know, the people that have been here. Those people are the people that need to stay, and anyone else who is not part of this club should leave because they are a stranger and a foreigner, and I don't know them. And the church no longer becomes a hospital for sinners, but it becomes just this club where it is the select group of people that if you happen to be accepted in the club, then you're in, and you feel warmth and have the benefits of the club. Or if you are rejected by it, then it, you will be told or it will be mean no to you somehow through body language or some other means that you are not accepted in this club and so please you know see yourself out this unfortunately happens in our churches it happens that when i get so comfortable with a certain group of people here and this church is for us more than simply um, a place where we come to worship god but it becomes this social clique that whenever people come in to disrupt this social clique it, it, we feel threatened by it okay Again, this is, um, this is wrong. 
Sometimes we judge people also based on their cultural differences. Someone looks different than me or speaks differently than me or comes from a different place than me or has different ideas than me, then I reject them simply because they are different from me. Again, when, when, when in the book of Revelation, when we see that there are people that are in heaven that are from all nations, east and west and north and south, where are these people coming from? These are obviously people from all different kinds of walks of life that all look differently, that all speak different languages. So, so it is not only us. It is not only a small select group of people that look and act like us are the ones that are going to be in heaven, right? So the church needs to be open to all. So these are all wrong reasons to judge. It's wrong for me to judge because I believe that I have good works. It's, it's, it's wrong for me to judge because I believe that I have a high amount of knowledge. It's wrong for me to judge because they're not part of my social group or they don't look like me, okay? What about the, the flip side? How is it that I sometimes should take a more direct action or I should be more firm in standing for what I believe, but we cave, but we end up not standing for what we believe. We end up just trying to blend in with everyone when we should actually take that stance. One reason that we lean on this excessive acceptance side is that we are afraid of rejection. We're afraid of being rejected. Any one of us in a situation is you know afraid afraid to be rejected if 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 i am put on the spot about what i believe and i have to declare it if i have to declare what it is that i believe and there's going to be consequences to that and here in our country they might be more than anything social consequences not as much legal although it is getting there uh, as opposed to maybe in egypt or other places where it's physical consequences like you might get killed or you might get beaten but still there's consequences if i am straight up for instance, about hot-button issues like homosexuality. If I say I believe homosexuality is wrong, and I say this in a public place, what's going to happen to me? Do we find ourselves afraid to say this, not willing to say it? Maybe we'll say it in certain places and not others. And I'm not saying that our goal is just to go and antagonize people. It's not that we're just going to go somewhere and start talking about this just because we are supposed to talk about it. No. But there are times where the question is raised in a legitimate way, and we have to take a stance. Either I say what it is that I believe, or I stay quiet. And the reason I might stay quiet is because what? I might be afraid of rejection. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles said, we ought to obey God rather than men. I think this was St. Peter that said this. We ought to obey God rather than men. Who is it that we fear? Do we fear God or do we fear man? This was the problem that the parents of the man born blind had. That even though they saw the miracle that happened and they acknowledged the greatness of the miracle of their son who had been healed, but they refused to say directly that this was their son that was healed by Jesus Christ. Because they knew that if they acknowledged this, they would be put out of the temple. And they would receive a punishment, some kind of social punishment for their declaration of faith. So we ask ourselves again, do we sometimes not speak up simply because we are afraid of rejection? Another way that sometimes we fall into this excessive acceptance is... Maybe I myself do not believe. Maybe I myself do not believe. Maybe I don't really believe that Christ is the way of salvation or the only way. Many of our youth actually no longer believe this. No longer believe that Christ is the only way of salvation. The world is full with so many religions and so many people. It's easy for some to say, you know what? Well, all these good people in the world, so I believe they're all going to be saved, right? But again, we go back to the idea we said at the beginning of legalism. Are we saved by our works? Is it just because somebody is good that they're going to be saved? Actually, even in the Old Testament, 
the very good people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, all these great people, they did not go to heaven. They went to Hades because the gates of heaven were not open. It was only after Christ resurrected that he opened the gates of paradise and that anyone was allowed to enter. So it is only through Christ as the Savior that we are saved, that we are brought to that place. It is not by any other means. It's not because we are good. And this is something that we all have to understand. So what if I myself don't believe this? If I myself don't believe this, then obviously I'm not going to be the one to go and to stand for my faith and to offend somebody because in the end I'm going to say, you know what, well that person's fine. That person's just fine the way they are. They're living their life in a good way. They are a good, moral, ethical person. And so they're going to go to heaven or something good is going to happen to them or whatever it might be. So I'm not going to make any effort to be, you know, to be uncomfortable and put myself in an awkward situation where I actually have to speak to them something that they don't want to hear because I myself don't believe it. If I really ask myself, I myself don't believe it, and so I don't want to rock the boat, so to speak. Another way that we might uh, lean on the side of excessive acceptance or what the world calls love is through tolerance. This kind of, and I put it in quotations. This idea of tolerance is, is, is different than the kind of tolerance that maybe we think about. For instance, if there is someone who is, um, you know, very loud in the church, we might tolerate them in the sense that we might not want to say anything to them and because we understand they are in a situation where maybe their children are loud. That's a tolerance. If someone is doing something that bothers me, but I can understand the reason why, maybe they have a weakness, that's doing, okay, I tolerate them. This is a good kind of tolerance. I tolerate those who are weak. I tolerate people who have disabilities because I know that they cannot do what everyone else can do, even though they might be slower even though they might not be able to do things as quickly. I tolerate them out of love. This is a good kind of tolerance. This is not the kind of tolerance that the world speaks about with tolerance. The tolerance that we hear about in the world is a part of what we call postmodernism. The idea of postmodernism is that all truths are personal. So everybody, believe whatever you want to believe, and it's all good. You can't say that one person is right and another person is wrong. Everybody is right. Okay, so the idea of tolerance there is essentially accept the truths of other people even when their truths contradict your own. Don't take a stand for what you believe. Let everybody have their own truth. But again, if we read the verse here, 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says what? For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Who is this person who has a form of godliness? What is There's so many different forms of godliness. And these people who practice this postmodernist tolerance, they imagine themselves to be righteous. They imagine themselves to be doing a good thing. And that those who stand against what they're saying are the bigots and the prejudices and the, the hateful people. This is why they see Christianity as hateful. You know, the, the, the religion that, priests, that preaches the deepest kind of love that is not practiced in any other religion is seen as being hateful. Why? Because it's exclusive. Because we say there is something you must do and there's something you cannot do. Because there is a certain group that is accepted and there's a certain group that is not accepted. And it is based on your own choices and your own actions. right? And because we believe that, we are suddenly hateful. 
because we, as though we hate those people. We do not hate those people that are condemned by God. God doesn't even hate them. There's no hatred in it at all. This is, this is the standard that God has set. And again, we are not saved by our good works. We are saved by his mercy. None of us can reach that standard that he has set, which is why repentance is so important. But for those who will not accept and those who will not even repent, what is left for them? Okay, so this is our role in this. Our role is to go and to tell them, this is what you must do. You, 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 we are not perfect and we do not go to heaven because we are perfect, but we are repenting. So you also should repent. This is what we're asking people. This is what we're preaching to people. Instead, we tolerate in the sense that I take no stand. I do not say, okay, well, what you believe is wrong. Who, who dares in our times now to tell people that what they believe is wrong, right? Belief has become such a personal thing. Belief has become just kind of an emotional thing about what I, what I desire to be true or what makes me feel good about myself as opposed to it being an objective truth, opposed to it being, okay, what is the reality? Is the reality really that there is a God? And who is he? Is he the God of Christianity? Is he the God of Islam? Okay, is he one of the Hindu gods? Who is he? Does he really exist? Or is this all idea of religion just a framework that we invented to make ourselves feel good about ourselves? And if it's the latter, then I can understand why it would be offensive to someone for me to come and tell them, well, your religion is wrong. Well, how can my religion be wrong? It's something I invented. It's something that makes me feel good about who I am. How can you tell me that it's wrong? It doesn't even make sense to say that, that it's wrong. But if we speak about religion as being an objective truth that there either is or is not a God, and this God either has certain characteristics or he does not, then we can't speak in terms of how I feel about him or what makes me feel good anymore. It's just about, is he there or is he not there? And if he is there, what does he say and what does he do? Okay, when we frame it in that way, then this idea of tolerance just is nonsense. You cannot, you cannot accept something and its opposite at the same time. So we have to really understand for ourselves what is it that we believe and then take a stand for what we believe and, and necessarily this causes other beliefs to be false. Another reason we might avoid um, putting people in uncomfortable situations, speaking to them about our faith is because we don't want to discomfort them. We don't want to confront them. You know, we don't want to offend people. No one likes to offend people. And we try to, to you know, avoid offending people as much as possible, which is good. We shouldn't want, we shouldn't, we don't gain anything by offending others. But, but we shouldn't also try to avoid offending others as the ultimate goal. Like, my only goal is that I want to not offend. Well, what if there's times where we have to offend? You know, if you're in, the, in the, 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 the history of the church and all the saints that were, became martyrs that stood up for what they believed, then why were they martyred? They were martyred because they offended somebody. You know, they could have very easily said, you know what, I changed my mind. I believe in your gods and let me offer incense to the idols. Done. Even if it was done falsely, like even if they were just saying that because they wanted to avoid getting killed and then really in their heart they didn't believe that. But they were martyred because they were offensive. And, and when we pride ourselves on the faith of the martyrs, what makes them martyrs? Do we have the same spirit of the martyrs where we are willing even to, you know, admit or and say what it is that we believe? We're not going to get killed like that if we say those things. We might be uncomfortable. We might make others uncomfortable. We might lose a friend, but we're not going to get tortured. We're not going to get killed. We're not going to get like tarred and burnt alive. We're not going to get any of those things. And see how strong their faith was that even in the face of all of that suffering that they were to face simply for acknowledging what they believe, they still remained strong and firm to the end for what they believed. So I ask myself, is the reason that I do not want to declare the truth to others simply because I don't want to offend 
because it's going to make me uncomfortable. Proverbs 27, verse 5, it says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Meaning what? Sometimes we have to be direct. Sometimes the situation calls for a direct approach. Sometimes we've tried every other option and it has not worked. And all that is left is for me to be direct out of love. It is, it is out of love. Rebuke is out of love. What purpose do I have to come and rebuke someone? Why? Why would I put myself in such a situation to offend another person, to feel discomfort myself? Why? It's only out of love. I'm sacrificing this. I'm putting my friendship with this person perhaps on the line because I care about it, that person so much that I'm willing even to lose the relationship, but I have to at least tell them the truth so that they might accept it and be saved. This is, this is important for us to understand. Another reason is lack of responsibility. Some of us, we just feel like we don't have any responsibility. My goal is just to kind of look down and walk and not trip and not pay attention to anyone or anything around me. And I have no responsibility for anyone or anything in the world. All I care about is me and my family and my things. I have no responsibility. But look what it says in James chapter 5. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It is our responsibility. Again, Christ said that we are the light of the world and we are the salt of the earth. And if a salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? And if we put the light under a basket, then how will it shine? If we are those things, then we have a responsibility to use them, right? We don't just receive all these blessings from God to keep them to ourselves. We don't just receive these things for us to enjoy and God says, okay, I'm just happy with you. That's it. I, on I only care about you. I don't care about anyone else. I don't care about the rest of the billions of people on the planet. All I care about is you. Yeah, for us to kind of comprehend that there are billions of people that do not know Christ. Billions. So what is our role in this? What is my purpose in this? Why did God put us here? Why did God give us churches with doors that are unlocked and open for people to enter? We have to allow them to enter. We have to encourage them to enter. We have to live lives that promote our Christian principles even without words. We have, to, we have a responsibility. God gave us this responsibility and he will ask us what we did with this responsibility. It is not just for me to close my eyes and to, you know, just focus on myself and that's it. No, God has asked us to save the sinners, to bring them from the error of their way. Another reason uh, that we might fall or lean on the imbalance of excessive acceptance of people is I really just care about myself. What does that mean? So sometimes I just care more about my relationship with a person. I care so much about losing a friendship or losing a relationship that I will refuse and not bring up to them anything that they're doing wrong, rebuke them in any way because I'm afraid that if I do, they will be offended at me and they will stop being my friend or whatever the case might be, right? What this is showing is simply a love of myself. I, 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 I don't want to experience pain. I would rather that person continue in the error of their way as long as I don't experience pain. I don't want to lose them, right? And, and this is one of the most selfish ones because I'm really just saying I'm okay with that person being condemned. really doesn't matter to me at all. All that matters to me is that I want to be with them, right? So when we frame it that way and we try to understand it that way, it sounds very different maybe than we convince ourselves in our own minds. 
again, we, we think in terms of, you know, I'm shy or I don't, I, they're not going to believe me. You know, we say they're not going to believe me. Well, maybe not. Maybe they're not going to believe us. But, but maybe they will. And maybe if they don't believe me today, maybe it'll trigger something in them that they will, you know, believe in 10 years. The point is, is that we all, like if we all work together in this, if we all try to shine this light all together, then we will make a difference. But if all of us say somebody else is going to do it, no one's going to do it, it's never going to work, then it certainly will not work. The last reason I'm going to speak about of, uh, of, of why we don't rebuke and why we, we just accept everyone um, without, without, without standing up for what we believe is hypocrisy. In 1 John chapter 5, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. But what if we do not keep His commandments? What if we do not try to keep His commandments? What if we are openly rebellious against God? If I am rebellious against God in my own life, if I am living in an active sin with no repentance, then who am I to go and to, to judge who am I to go and to rebuke another person? I cannot rebuke another because I myself need rebuking. I'm like the person that has a plank in my own eye and I'm trying to take the speck out of my brother's eye. First remove the plank in your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. So it is not to say that we must all be perfect and saints in order to preach, in order to evangelize, in order to, to rebuke, in order to stand up for what we believe. That's not the case. But we have to be at least repenting. We have to say, you know what, I'm not choosing to live in sin. I am living in sin perhaps and I am sinning because I'm weak and because I need the strength and the mercy of Christ and I need to change and I need more transformation and I need the Holy Spirit to work in me. And, and until that happens, I'm going to continue to repent. So yes, we will always be sinners, but we have to be repenting sinners and sinners that want to change and sinners that agree that the law is good. It is not that we declare that the law of God is impractical or evil or bad and so I'm not going to try to follow it. No, we acknowledge that the God's law is good. Maybe we fail at following it, but yet we still stand up and try harder and try harder again. So that's the difference. But So if I'm not even trying to live in my own life, you know, live according to Christian principles, then how can I even, you know, I, how could I go and tell anyone the same? So again, this is our responsibility. So today we meditate on Christ and how we see him as the image of love and kindness and compassion, and yet his love and kindness and compassion is, is sometimes manifested in offense, in offending others. So we cannot say that we love people only when we agree with them, and only when we do them good services and good deeds. All of this is love, yes. But there are times where our love has to be manifested the way that Christ's love was manifested with the whip of cords. Not physically, but symbolically. That we have to offer the truth in a way that might offend and that might scar in order for others to see the truth and so that they might be saved. And glory be to God forever. Amen.